What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I counted my years and realized that I have less time to live by than I have lived so far. I feel like a child who won a pack of candies. At first, he ate them with pleasure, but when he realized that there was little left, he began to taste them intensely. My time is too short. I want the essence. My spirit is in a hurry. I do not have much candy in the package anymore. I want to live next to humans, very realistic people, who know how to laugh at their mistakes, who are not inflated by their own triumphs, and who take responsibility for their actions. In this way, human dignity is defended, and we live in truth and honesty. Yes, I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry to live with the intensity that only maturity can give. I do not intend to waste any of the remaining desserts. I'm sure they will be exquisite, much more than those eaten so far. My goal is to reach the end satisfied and at peace with my loved ones and my conscience. We have two lives, and the second begins when you realize you only have one. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Ryan Bell, and this is episode 72. I ask the questions around here, and I have the pleasure of listening to people reflect on their lives and the things that give their life meaning and worth. And with me today to reflect on exactly this is my friend Dave Warnock. Dave is the father of two daughters and a son, a former evangelical pastor in the Foursquare Church, now an atheist, and a lover of life. I first became acquainted with Dave through the crazy network of post-theists and atheists on social media. I frankly don't remember exactly when we became Facebook friends. Those early days were a blur. As I sit here, the earliest memory of Dave that I have is him standing up for a woman who was being harassed online for telling her story of being abused by her boyfriend. He wasn't trying to score points for himself or virtue signaling, as some are fond of saying. He was just doing the right thing, as he saw it, using his influence to support someone who needed some support. What sparked this conversation that I'm sharing with you in this episode is a very unfortunate and life-altering diagnosis Dave received six or seven weeks ago. Once again, I first learned of Dave's condition from a Facebook post he wrote shortly after his diagnosis. About six weeks ago, he wrote, I was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. I had been having symptoms for the better part of a year, but only got the formal diagnosis toward the end of February. So when Marie LePage from Everyone's Agnostic Podcast reached out and asked if I'd like to have Dave on the show, it wasn't even really a question for me, and we scheduled it right away. As you will hear, Dave knows that he only has two to three years of life left, 
and he has been very deliberate in how he plans to spend the remaining moments of that life. He has chosen to die out loud, as he says, to share the journey of his final days with his friends, loved ones, and now with us on the Life After God podcast. In the show notes, I will share a link to his blog where you can learn more about him and follow along with the stories he shares from his journey. If you appreciate this podcast and want to be a part of the community in a deeper way, there are several ways that you can do that. You can follow us on social media where we share a lot more content in between episodes. You can visit our website at lifeaftergod.org, and there you'll find all the links to our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can join Life After God as a member. Members have access to the members-only Facebook page and special perks that come out from time to time. All you have to do to join is visit my Patreon page and sign up. It's only $5 a month, and you'll have the added satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to make this podcast free for everyone who needs it. Also, if you want to help out, you can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. I'm told that really helps us get the show to a wider audience through some magic algorithm that only the wizards at Apple know. But, you know, I just take all that on faith. Two quick thoughts about the subject of this show before we get to the interview with Dave. As most of you know, and as you hear in the intro to every podcast here, I spent a year living very intentionally with my doubts about God, faith, and religion exploring them, leaning into them, and living as though I was an atheist, just going with my suspicion that there was no God. I wrote about that journey in a blog called Year Without God. It became very popular, and I was on radio and TV shows nationally and internationally. Hundreds of people wrote to me to say they could relate to my story and thought I was so brave to share my doubts out loud, not after I had thought it all through and come to my conclusions, but as I was processing them. Dave is doing something similar, but so much more difficult, and I would say more important. He is living with and sharing his experience of dying. That's his intention anyway, and I want to say very clearly right here, this is profoundly brave and awe-inspiring. There's nothing more terrifying than knowing that day by day, your body is failing and you are literally dying. In a very important sense, we are all dying, and I hope this conversation brings this reality a little closer home for each one of us. But whereas my death is postponed indefinitely, as best I can tell, Dave has a very finite number of days remaining. He doesn't know exactly when his day will come, of course, but doctors have given him a window of three to five years. The second thing I want to reflect on here is the fact that as I'm releasing this podcast, the Christian Holy Day of Easter is just three days away. As I've said many times before, Easter never quite landed right for me as a Christian, As the years went by, I understood the movements of Holy Week more and more. They made more sense to me the older I got and the more of this world with all of its problems I had experienced. Thursday is about humility and service. Friday is about betrayal. Saturday is about death, absence, finality. Then on Sunday morning, it's all erased, as though it never happened. It never made sense to me. It was as distant and unrelatable as the idea of living forever. All religions, to one degree or another, are designed to help the human psyche mitigate the terror and finality of death. Some promise nirvana, others promise paradise, but in the end, most teach that death is not really the end of the story. It's just a short detour on our way to the bliss of eternal life. Over the past five years, my intuition that something was not right about this story has grown to the place where I now see that eternal life is a fraud. Not just because it isn't true, but because it never was good news in the first place. 
It is precisely the fragility and finitude of life that make it a wonder and a treasure. The chances of us being here at all, me over here with a microphone and you over there listening in your car or on your jog, is so wildly unlikely. And we're here for such a short time, and then we're gone. This is exactly what makes our time living so precious and the commitments we make during our lives so significant. We were fed the lie that the only things that matter are the things that are eternal. The truth is that eternal things can never matter. How precious would a photograph of your parents or grandparents be if there were an infinite supply of replacements? Or how incredible would a visit to a faraway place or the view from the top of a mountain peak be if you could be there anytime you wanted with no effort at all? What would your love mean if your child, your partner, or your friend had no chance of ever dying? There is inherent risk in living any life that could be recognized as a life. Absolute security is not only impossible, it isn't desirable. Only a commitment to a life complete with all its risks is a life worth living. If nothing can be lost, nothing can be prized, cherished, or loved. Our fear of death robs us of the beauty of life that is only possible because it is finite. The denial of death is the avoidance of life. And so we witness our friend Dave's brave journey to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, as Thoreau once said. So on this Easter weekend, 2019, I bring you Dave Warnock, Dying Out Loud. Dave Warnock, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Hello, hello. How are you, sir? I'm good. It's great to have you with us today, and uh, thanks for, for making the time. My pleasure. It's been far too long. I've been... I've known of you, and we've been friends on Facebook for quite a number of um, quite a number of months, and probably even years. And uh, it's uh, a shame we're finally just now getting around to talking. But I'm really happy to to be able to to talk with you. The circumstances of our conversation are sort of framed by a recent diagnosis that you received. But I, before we get into that, I would love to just go back a little bit in your story for my listeners who don't know you. And you and I have quite a similar background, a similar kind of story. Um, Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your relationship to religion and faith as a young person growing up and maybe just start there and give us a little bit of your history. My relationship with religion. Oh, my. (laughs) Yeah. To echo what you said, Ryan, I'm really glad to finally connect with you. We have been friends on Facebook probably several years now. I've I wasn't raised as a Christian. I came into it in the Jesus movement. Mm. In the 70s, the Jesus movement followed the hippie movement, and um, it was the hippie movement with uh, with with religion. Um, I was a product of a broken home and middle of three boys. I have a half-sister that came in the second marriage. Um, but I, I And looking back, I think I have a better perspective than I did at the time, as we all do. But I was uh, insecure and uh, unsure of what to do with my life. I had a, a somewhat of a sense that I wanted to be a sports writer because mm. I liked sports and I liked words. I didn't have a lot of direction from my parents in terms of getting to school and getting the money for school. And so I was just kind of drifting. Um, you know, looking back, you, you kind of think of uh, when you graduate from high school – that's the last day everything's kind of spelled out for you. Right. And if you don't have a lot of help in what to do, you're kind of uh, adrift. And so that's kind of where I was. Um, 
graduated high school in 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 May of seventy three, and by December of seventy three, I'd given my life to Jesus. God didn't look back and was preaching on the streets the next year, running coffee houses, wow. doing the whole thing. I I completely ditched the idea of college because. It was very important that I save as many people as possible because Jesus was coming back, you know, next year. Right. And the year after that and the year after that. And he's still coming back next year. Um, hmm. I took very seriously the mandate that I felt to be about the business of the kingdom and to really go hard after that. And so I didn't have time for college, didn't have time for a career, didn't really have a job, um, worked in coffee houses. Yeah, I it's interesting. I did finish college, but I I didn't I didn't go to medical school because I had the same feeling Jesus was coming back and I didn't need to mm-hmm. be spending the final days in medical school when I should be out evangelizing and and so forth yeah. and and took a different path and went into ministry instead. Yeah, we took that stuff seriously. So, over the years, I, you know, uh late 70s, I I uh, did all the stuff. I was a youth pastor. I was a pastor. I was an associate pastor. I was a worship leader. Hmm. I was a serious disciple of Jesus. And, um, you know, as we've talked to so many people that have gone down this path, we've, we've realized that the more serious we were about it, the more traumatic the exit from it was. Yes. That's been true f- almost every time. What was the initial impulse for you to start questioning or or the beginning of your doubting phase? Yeah, um, that was a period of, uh, that was a process, as it is with most of us. Um, Those on the other side think that we just woke up one day and decided to be an atheist. Um, Right. But it was a process of of going through things that, and, and you know, looking back over the years, you always have things that happen that you have questions about. You think, wait a minute. Um What's that about? Where was God in that situation? Wait a minute. How, how did that happen? How did that get by? Because hmm. I believe that God was active and involved, and he answered prayer. And you could, you know, if you followed him diligently, he would bless your life and all those things. And when that didn't happen, you kind of explain it away and that sort of thing. But the church that we were in here in, in Tennessee and in, in Nashville at the time um, was got more and more cultish and um, was was led by a very narcissistic, controlling um, manipulative man and still is to this day. Hmm. Um, and I had been serving there and my kids, we'd raised our kids there and, and, uh, my two daughters and my son. And we were very active in, in the church. I was in lay ministry. I was leading the men's ministry and doing a lot of teaching. I was a, an adjunct professor in their Bible college and all that stuff. And then eventually they brought me on staff. And that was probably the beginning of the end. Although I really wanted, to be on staff because I loved doing all that stuff. I thought it'd be great to do it and get paid for it. So I did. Um, and as I, as I got on staff, I began to see behind the curtain, so to speak, you begin to see in the kitchen how the stuff's prepared. Um, hmm. and, and it was really ugly and more and more. So I became disenchanted with the ministry and with him in particular, this, this pastor, uh, he had put me in charge of a satellite church back then. I don't know if they still do it, but the churches that wanted to be mega churches would develop satellite congregations. Mm-hmm. And so he put me in charge of one of those that was struggling and I turned it around in a year and made it very successful. And I think there was some jealousy there on his part. We just clashed from the get go. Wow. And, uh, in essence, uh, I, it came down to where I was either going to quit or be fired. Um, 
So I chose the route of being fired because I thought at least I'll get some severance here. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and you know, <laughs> I had to make similar to my thinking, <laughs> had to pay some bills, you know. Um, yep. But when that happened, uh, he really turned my daughters against me. My son was out of the church away at college. And so he he kind of got out of the picture soon enough before it got ugly. He didn't get tainted by it. But oh, my wow. daughters were married to these men that were aspiring pastors and in their intern program. And, you know, he was grooming them and he was whispering all the good things in their ears and um, essentially he turned my daughters against me. Hmm. I mean, literally having meetings with them present where he would just denigrate me openly. Wow. Just by name, call out all kinds of things and even uh. hinting that I'd had an affair, which I hadn't. Things like that, where they essentially were put in the position of having to choose between God and their dad. And being good, faithful Christians, they chose God. Wow, that is so corrupt. They adopted the position of shunning me because that's a practice that he very much condoned and and had done it before with families. He was known for splitting families up and, and continues to be known for that. And so they shunned me. Even I was still a faithful believer and fervent in my faith and here they were not having anything to do with us living 30 minutes away from us Mm. my wife and i had a couple of grandkids at the time we couldn't see them they wouldn't talk to us they wanted us to repent the right way and went through a torturous year or so of of that kind of behavior and i in the midst of that i began to really cry out to god saying you know here god i've been faithful to you Where, where are you in this thing I was crying out to uh, their denomination's leadership, which is out in L.A. It's a four-score denomination. Okay. You're probably familiar with that, yeah, train, yeah. that, tra- that train wreck. Um, mm-hmm. I was in touch with the president of the, of the denomination, and he acknowledged there were issues there with, with this pastor. And I was in touch with other pastors in the city here. And I couldn't get any help from anyone. And I was, at that point, beginning to really ask some serious questions about you know, where are you, God? What's going on here? Um, my family's blown apart while I'm faithful to you. What's, what's your, what's your part in this? And I, along that time, I started reading some things, you know, the contraband that we shouldn't read, <laughs> asking the questions we shouldn't ask, digging through, you know, strangely enough, I'd never dealt into how the Bible came to be, the history of the church, all those things that if you look into them, they get pretty ugly. Right. That's why many people who go through theology schools come out atheists. <laughs> the more you look into it, yeah, the more it reveals itself yeah, to you. <laughs> it reveals itself as a, as, a, as a product of man. Yeah. I came to the painful conclusion that I no longer believed he was there. Mm. And it was one evening I said, wow, he's not there and he never has been. And that was it. Wow. And for me, once I realized the Bible was a man-made product and was not the inspired word of God, the rest of the dominoes fell pretty quickly. How long ago was that when you you made that sort of conclusion? That was um, about eight years ago. Okay. So not that long ago. No. Well, seems like a long time ago. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're trying to reconcile with your girls and you're making some headway while you're still a Christian. So does the confession that you're no longer a believer then throw those relationships back into turmoil? Yep, that threw it all back in off the plate. Oh, wow. And their position became, and still is to this day, as far as I know, um, that we need you to repent and return to God because for us to 
accept you and have relationship with you is is to basically endorse your apostasy and our in our view your eternal destiny is more important than this life so this is a very um one of the items that i've come to uh associate with cults and i know that's not i'm i'm not trying to craft sort of a scientific definition of what a cult is as opposed to a, a right. religion that's not a cult but i was just talking i uh, just recorded a conversation with lloyd evans and uh, of the formerly a jehovah's witness and he was telling me about shunning as well from his perspective as a yeah. Jehovah's Witness. And is this a characteristic of your the congregation you were a part of there in Tennessee, or is that universally uh, the way that the Foursquare Church would handle a situation like this? No, it's just this congregation. He he considers himself a real expert on church discipline, which is falls under that category. Oh, boy. Um, you turn him over for, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that yeah. the spirit might be saved. Good stuff. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful scripture, isn't it? Oh my! Yeah, and you know he takes seriously where Jesus said, uh, "If if if you love your father more than me or your mother more than me, and he that follows me, think not that I come to bring peace on the earth. I come to bring a sword to separate fathers from mothers." You know, when people say, mm-hmm. "I don't like religion, I just love Jesus," I say, "Listen, Jesus wasn't that cool." Yeah, here's some things he said that have impacted me directly. So, it wasn't all uh, flowers and roses with him. I've been learning a lot, reading a lot more about the uh, f- philosopher that I've been I've been reading lately about how the the eternal you know care for someone if you believe in in the eternal the ability to care for them in their temporal existence really goes out the window absolutely the the more seriously you take that and the, and the Christians who believe in both the the Christians who believe in an eternal uh, existence and also manage to care for their life and the life of others and maybe even, you know, animals and the environment and all of that are really doing so out of a secular worldview, whether they realize it or not. You know, because, you know, honestly, the four square pastor that you're describing, you know, in a way he has it exactly right. Like, yeah. If there is eternal life and if there is the promise of eternity with your family and and that's the mo- that's the pearl of great price then then what would you do in order to ensure that your loved one made it there you know and and so in a way he's like like you said earlier in your story about you know being a Jesus freak like you took it seriously and this guy is definitely taking it seriously Well he may be I'm not sure I think he's a manipulator par excellence right my my daughters certainly are and i don't fault them for that you know i raised them to be serious disciples of jesus and they took it seriously and and they really believe this stuff they really believe that i'm destined for hell and if they embrace me in this life then they're putting that life in jeopardy how how does that work exactly like how are they contributing to your demise or conversely how are they helping your possible redemption by shunning you well think of it in terms of a drug addict okay if, if you've got a, a, a family member who's hooked on drugs and he still wants to come around and be a part of the family but he's open about his drug use and he's not going to change it and he doesn't care what you think about it he's going to be a drug addict but he still wants to be in your family there's a sense of enabling mm. if you if you allow that to go on unchallenged right so for them, they know they can't challenge me because they know they can't out-talk me. They know that I know more about this stuff than they do. 
So for them to engage in dialogue with me about my apostasy and my unbelief and my loss of faith, they know they would lose that argument very quickly. And so their choice, their weapon of choice is to say, well, we're just going to keep our hand up, talk to the hand, and when you're ready to repent and return to God, then we'll talk to you. But until you are, we don't really have anything to say to you because we know that they, they, they know inside themselves they can't out talk me in terms of, of discussing the different merits of faith versus un, uh, unbelief. Right. So that's their choice. And I think that's what shunning is. I think it's a coward's way, to be honest with you. I, I, it's, it's much easier to just, you know, it's kind of like in the dating world to ghost someone. Yeah. Rather than, rather than just deal honestly with with the challenges of that relationship or the questions that each might have just block their phone and go about your merry way right <laughs> that that's really a lot easier right it doesn't cause as much stress or anxiety you just move on down the road so it's easy for us to sit here and talk about this intellectually and how you know you you came to the to an understanding of the truth that that god doesn't exist and and your kids, you know, haven't come to that realization and this has caused a rift in your family. But this is your, these are your kids we're talking about. Like, how does this, I understand how it's, fun, how it works. I mean, I, I get the dynamic that's happening, but what is it, what's it feel like for you? What's it like for you to go through this? Well, um, I liken it now to a scar rather than a wound. Yeah. The scar is there, it reminds you of the wound, but it's not as painful as it was when it was an open wound. Mm-hmm. But for many years, it was an open wound. I mean, we're talking about seven, five, six, seven, eight years of birthdays, Christmases, Father's Days, Mother's Days, um, without them. Uh, the grandchildren were never in my home. I have six grandchildren now. Oh. And so by association, they also shunned my wife at the time. I'm divorced now, but... Uh, which all of this led to that, obviously. Um, right. But I watched her go through not having her kids and grandkids in her life because I had, I had lost my faith. And their position was that she should have left me because if she's taking her faith seriously, she can't be married to an atheist. Mm. For years, it was a, a, a huge source of pain and depression and sadness and anger all those things came in waves year after year to the point where I had to choose a little over two years ago because my wife and I, she stayed a Christian. I wasn't. It was a, a gulf that was becoming wider. We had completely different worldviews, nothing in common, no point of connection other than the, you know, small stuff of life, nothing of major import. Um, and I also felt like if I got out of the way, they would let her back in their lives. And that's exactly what's happened. And she was probably in a double bind in the sense that she couldn't divorce you either because that's forbidden as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny that they, Christians in every group take some scriptures really seriously and others they don't take so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. There's plenty of divorces in that church. <laughs> uh, oh my, yeah. And they would have given her every reason to divorce an unbeliever, you know, even though the, you can take... You can find all kinds of scriptures to deal with me, um, to come after me, you know, and try to win me back from my apostasy or to shut me off. I mean, pick a verse and you could apply it to my situation. Right. As, as well as to, to our marriage. 
so that's what happened. Um, I've still not had contact with the kids. I mean, I have since this diagnosis, but very minimal and we, I have still haven't seen them. Um, my daughters are only, my, my son is fine. He, he got out, he, he got out of the cult and he is actually, he and his wife a few years ago came to the same conclusion as I did that as, as she put it, the world pretty much works as it would if there were no God. Exactly. This was my conclusion as well. In fact, that was part of the core of my year without God. Yeah, you came to that conclusion. It was to say, like, what if I lived as though there were, and I got <laughs> no, major grief from professional atheists over the idea of living like there's no God. They're like, how does that work? Yeah, whatever. But basically, I, I worked on the assumption that there's no God, um, and nothing changed. It pretty so, much proved itself true, right? There it goes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd actually heard about you in that little uh, period of time when you were doing that experiment. I think I read it somewhere. Um, I thought, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, because that's, that's kind of the short version of, of okay. my story, and here I am. It's it's interesting. No matter how many times I ask people their their stories, everyone's a little bit different, but there are common themes. Um, and the most the more extreme cases are are these that involve real loss of relationship Mm -hmm. not just you know we had something before and it's a little different now it's not quite as magical as it once was with you know in our marriage or something but but serious like fissures you know where you're not allowed to see grandkids or or even your own kids or i mean this is the most perverse thing and and you're right about it being you know as uh, you know in the in the text it's in it's in it's in the new testament jesus basically said not not basically jesus yeah. said you have to prioritize me and loyalty to my kingdom over anything and everything including your own life you know it's it's yeah and it's always been it struck me as how no one seems to think that's narcissistic of him to say something like that <laughs> well and the thing is like you're the one causing the problem here yeah you know dave like this is you sowing discord in your family right uh, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with the religion or the teachings of this possibly mythical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, this is your fault, and you have caused this in your family. And and it's it's like, wait, what? Like, I'm the one living with, like, a normal life with my feet on the ground, mm-hmm. and yet it's it's somehow you know, your fault that you're... Yeah, I've just realized that they don't have any context for understanding what has happened to us. Um, they have to put it in several, one of several categories. You're either mad at God, you're running from God, you just want to sin, so you're um, denying God, uh, you're in rebellion against God. They cannot conceive of the fact that we just simply don't believe he's there. Right. They, they don't have any place to put that. And and so even now with this diagnosis, my I've got a brother who's a pastor of an evangelical church in east texas uh, my sister my mom my daughters they're all in the in the camp of saying we really are praying that dave will repent before he dies that's that's where their concern is they're not praying that you'll be healed and and thereby give credit to god or eh, they probably are mixing that in you know yeah to add another layer of ridiculous sorrow to to my story is one of my daughters has some pretty serious cancer Mm. they have seen god not heal her right and she's got three kids she's got way more reason for god to heal her and she's a faithful believer and you know all the reasons that god 
should heal someone if he's in that business at all. Um, she qualifies on every count, um, mm-hmm. except for the God works in mysterious ways card. Right. Um, but so I think they have a little bit of trouble believing that God would heal an atheist <laughs> when he hasn't done it to a, a faithful Christian in the same family. Sure. So I'm sure their prayers are more along the lines of, we sure hope he returns to God before it's too late. It's hard to imagine for me that someone's concern for my eternal life is genuine when they're not at all concerned for my present life. That's exactly the point of where I'm where I'm at right now. Like, how can they say, oh, we're so concerned that you'll spend eternity in hell. You don't even care to well, see me today. It speaks to what you said earlier. Um, this fetish for the afterlife that yeah. Christians have, it minimizes this life. Mm-hmm. And you can't. I mean, if you are so focused on heaven or hell and and eternity, then it, it's going to, by default, cause you to lessen your. It's going to lessen your view of 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 this life because this is only. It's like a warm up. It's like a a preseason football game. It doesn't really count. Yeah, it's like you're playing in a video game and you have three lives left, and exactly. you're like, "Well, I can spare this one because it's not." You know, it's like, you know, I was reading Kierkegaard again just a few days ago, you know, the opening chapters about uh, the the opening sort of sections there about him sort of running through various scenarios about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And, you know, he ultimately builds that story, you know, several versions of what could have happened or fictional accounts of what might have happened on Mount Moriah. Yeah. And and eventually builds to the point that, you know, Abraham took this leap of faith. And gave up his son to receive him back from God. And, I mean, this is the extreme, right? Where if you believe that God is all-powerful and you and is asking you to trust him, you'll even kill your own son. Mm-hmm. You won't just stand by and let them die. You would actually put a knife to him or her and make them die. And and this is sort of the the fetish, as you, I think, quite accurately put it, about the afterlife, you can't really value something that can't be lost. Yeah. So if they really believe that that we live forever, either in heaven or hell, then they're willing to sacrifice the the short temporal life. Our life is but a vapor. Mm-hmm. They're willing to sacrifice that easily on the altar of eternity. Yeah. If it would some way move me in the direction of the proper eternal life, I think it's a combination. They're willing to sacrifice this life and the. Part B of that, they just really don't want to deal with me. Right, because it, it threatens them, too. Yeah, it threatens them, and they know that they know how authentic I was. Everyone in my family knows what an authentic believer I was, so there's in the back of your mind, there's this thought, okay, if it really happened to him, could it happen to me? Hmm. I can't risk it. This could be contagious. I better stay away. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, And they just wow. don't want to deal with the conversation. They they just can't, they can't do it. So in addition to these, you know, I guess, challenges that you've faced over the last eight years and, and t- intensifying the last two years since you left your, your family and kind of started over, as you put it, you've just recently received an additional bit of bad news about your health. And I know we've alluded to it a couple of times. Can you tell us, tell us what's going on there? Yeah, it's uh it's ALS. Um Lou Gehrig's disease more commonly mm. known. I don't I don't even know what I, I could read up what the ALS part stands for, a bunch of big big words. 
I looked it up not too long ago, like two days ago in preparation for this and couldn't pronounce it. So. Yeah, I can't either. I don't even try. Um, it's bad. It's some bad shit, man. Yeah. It's a disease that attacks the muscles and eventually gets to the lungs, and then that's how you die. And the average lifespan from onset of symptoms is three to five years. So I've had symptoms about a year, so I've got a couple, three years is is the best guess anyone can say. Um mm. I got that diagnosis about six weeks ago at the end of February. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's kind of changed everything. So you're a year and a half in from first symptoms, basically. Uh, a little over. No, I've, I, I've, I think I've had symptoms a little more. You know how symptoms can be. You start noticing yeah. stuff and you don't know what it is and you think this and you think that. But looking back, I think I probably have had symptoms for about a year. Okay. So what are you, you said you've made some changes. What changes are you making? Pretty radical, drastic, immediate changes. I immediately retired. I was, mm. I was in the insurance business and doing well with it and was in the middle of a lot of activity with that. And it's, it's really, uh, it's fascinating, Ryan, when you get a diagnosis like this, it just change, everything falls away quickly. Um, mm. ALS is one of those, a doctor friend of mine said, she said, ALS is the diagnosis that stops doctors in their tracks. Wow. And by that she meant, because she's a doctor who's actually called people many times and told them they have cancer. Hmm. And you would think cancer is the big one that knocks everybody over. But with you think about cancer, there's so many different types. There's treatments. There's remission. There's long lifespans with cancer. ALS is just untreatable. It's unknown. Um, it's unpredictable. All those things. And doctors just say, and this, the neurologist that diagnosed me, he said, yep, that's what you have. And then that was it. Um, if you go out this door here, the exit there and the elevators that are there, that was it. We'll validate your parking. <laughs> yeah. Should I get dressed now? Yeah. Go ahead and get dressed. Oh my. Okay. Bye. <laughs> that was it. They just don't know have anything to tell you. There is nothing. Like with cancer, there's at least chemo yeah. and radiation and sur maybe exactly. surgery. There's follow-up treatments and all those things. And so immediately I just lost interest in everything that wasn't important. And work, I couldn't focus on work. I thought I would try to finish out the month and wrap some things up. And I just finished out the week and handed my stuff off to another agent. And um, my lease was up in my apartment. And I'd been looking to move from Nashville to Murfreesboro. And I was going to get a different apartment. And I knew that I probably didn't need to sign another one-year lease because I don't know how fast this is going to um, progress. Right. So I moved in with Cass and Mindy. Uh, they graciously offered to have me. They made a place for me that's very comfortable. I just quit doing stuff that didn't matter. I sold a bunch of my stuff. I sold my guitar, my golf clubs. I started cleaning out stuff, getting rid of stuff lightening my load and decided that I wanted to s just spend my time, whatever time I have of functionality. I wanted to spend it traveling to places I hadn't been spending time with people that I valued and, mm -hmm. and everything just, everything just fell away. Um, and so those are the kind of changes that I made immediately. <laughs> so how, um, how have the people around you responded to this announcement that you're, not only sick, but only have two, three years left of life. So the, a really remarkable thing that I've noticed is, is the different reactions between my atheist and agnostic friends 
and my Christian family and friends. And it's, it's a stunning, uh, a stunning difference, actually. Um, my atheist and agnostic friends have all been present. They've embraced it. They've run toward it instead of running from it. They've done things like call me and say, what, you know, hey, would you want, can we hang out? Can I come by? I want to see you. Um, a text. I'm thinking about you. I have no words, but I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. My son calling me the next day saying, dad, where do you want to go? Where have you not been that you would like to go? Let's take a trip. Let's, Mm. let's, let's do trips as many as you want to do. Let's, let's go. And, um, I just got back from a week in New York with him. So that was good. But my Christian brother and, and sister and mom and some of my Christian friends, they just do not know what to do with this. Hmm. And they've almost, they're almost in denial of it because in their world, death is not a real thing. It's just a pause toward an eternity one place or the other. Right. When you think about it, Jesus never really died. He just had a bad weekend and then he came back. So, right. you know, they don't really embrace death. They can't because their, their theology doesn't make a place for it. Mm-hmm. And so with them, it's like, they don't know what to say, so they don't say anything other than we're praying for you, which to me is passive-aggressive because they know how I feel about that. So my pastor brother, this is a great anecdote, uh, who, who talks for a living, mind you, could come up with no words for his brother who's dying. Wow. I got a text from him a couple days after, and he said, got the news, brother, praying for you ever since. Whoop, whoop. Hmm. Then I'm at the beach a few days after that, and... I saw that I'd missed a call from him, and so I just called him back. We don't ever talk, because after my deconversion, he and I had a couple of go-rounds, and it didn't go very well. So we don't really have anything to talk about. Um, I'd talk to him if he wanted to, but he always wants to try to convince me that he's right. So anyway, I saw that he'd called, and I called him back. I said, hey, brother, what's up? He said, oh, Dave, yeah, hey, man, um... I, uh, I, I called you by accident. I was trying to call Diana, that's his wife, and your numbers are right together, so I hit your number by mistake. And I said, nothing. And it was this long, awkward pause, and I did not bail him out. Wow. Because I knew, I knew what was happening. Oh. And he, he had nothing to say, and I just, I just let it sit. Oh. And after what probably was 20, 30 seconds, it, it may have been that long, I don't know, it was really long, he finally said, uh, yeah, so how are you? <laughs> I said, well, Chuck, I'm dying. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, how do you feel? <clears throat> like he's quizzing me, like he wants to know. You know, I said, well, I, I feel fine. I just don't have any strength. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's about the strength. That's right, yeah. Ooh. So, um, yeah, anyway, I, 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 like I said, I called you by mistake. So, um, yeah. Um, we might get to Tennessee soon. I'd love to see you. I said, okay, I'll be here. That was <laughs> I'll it. I'll be here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my, my God. I hung up the phone and I said, I said, oh my God, I cannot believe that. He had no words. And I know that no one has words, but my real friends say, Dave, I have no words. I love you. My, I'm my heart's broken. Yeah. Some, That's something, it. Yeah. And, th- and that means the world. Right. But when you don't say any words, I'm thinking, wow. But it's just that they're in denial of it. They don't know what to do with it. It's just this awkward, mm. 
they're, they're, they sent an email to my, my son and his wife said, we're praying for you, dad. Obviously that most importantly that he'll be saved before he dies. Hmm. And my son goes, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that's not obvious. No, that's not what's important to us. Right. Anyway, that's, it's just been a remarkable contrast in the, in the different reactions. Yeah. And once you've been on both sides of it, as you and I both have, absolutely, you can totally understand right. why it is that way. Absolutely. And I feel sorry for them. Yeah. I really do. I, I feel sorry for those people that don't know how to live life as humans. And that's simply what's what mm. the difference is. They don't know how to be fully human and fully present with another human because they have so much baggage they're carrying around. And it just it's it's so exhausting. That is sad. That is a it sad, really is. sad statement. It really is. It's sadder than dying in some ways, you know, to to have yeah. not to have not lived. To have not lived. And that's what I say. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just afraid of not living my full life. You know? Wow. I've got a pillow that I, and this is something I've had in my apartment for 2 years when I rebooted my life a couple of years ago. I adopted the saying that's on my pillow. It says carpe the fucking diem. <laughs> I've seen I've seen that on your Facebook. Yeah. And um, and the other motto that I've lived by is that we don't remember days, we remember moments. Oh, yeah. And so I came to this conclusion a few years ago that life is nothing but a collection of moments. And they're not, there's no overarching scheme and plan. And God doesn't have a wonderful plan for my life. In fact, no one does. Mm-hmm. It's a random chaotic life that's unpredictable and brutal at times, but unbelievably beautiful. And there are some incredibly beautiful moments that are worth reaching for and embracing and living for. And so that's been my mantra for the last couple of years. And I've just amplified that. I'm doing that on steroids now. What are a couple of those moments that have been amazing for you recently since you've gotten this diagnosis? You know, they're, they're little things. I almost always cry, so brace yourself. I, I, I just, just being with friends, gathering with a bunch of guys came over that are in our local group here that are part of our community. And, you know, a week or so after the diagnosis, we just hung out and we talked and laughed and drank and, and just, I just looked around the room in my apartment and I said, man, like I said, guys, this is a moment. This is it. This is what matters right here. Just embracing each other and sharing each other's lives. Um, I went to talk today. Another moment that was just unexpected and beautiful is very recent. Just today, a friend of mine is a is a professor at, at a college here, and she teaches English and literature. And she's doing a a course this semester on dealing with some poems that deal with dying. Um, Death be not proud. Do not go gentle in that good night. Several of those. So she had me come in and talk today. And so we went through some of these poems, and then I told him my story and talked about my perspective on dying as an atheist, as opposed to what I, how I viewed it as a Christian. And I didn't pull any punches. I, I told him that I believe religion is a man-made product to try to answer questions that don't have answers and to try to create a narrative that's comforting to us. Um, and uh, it was very good. It, it was, there, I did a lot of Q&A with him. And in the second class at the end, a girl, uh, one of the students hung around and came and asked me a question. And, and she said, I, I also have a medical condition 
that is going to shorten my life significantly. I I may live to the age of 40 Hmm. and she's 20 now. So she says, can, can you give me some tips on, on how I should live my life? Wow. (laughs) Wow. And so I, uh, I went over again what I'd said to her in the class. Uh, I said, I said, do everything you can to grab the good moments because life is full of them if you're looking for them. Hmm. And, and try your best to get perspective on what's unimportant and don't get caught up in that and focus on what's important. And I reminded her that many people have said that they don't regret the things they did in life. They regret the things they didn't do. Hmm. And she said, yes, I've heard that. Hmm. And then we just, we shared a hug and we both just started crying. <laughs> wow. And I thought, that's a moment. That's a moment when we can touch another human being in a very human and real way that's impactful for both of them. And I'll, I'll probably never see her again. And, but yet we had a moment. And it was fucking amazing. Mm. And that's what I live for. And that's what I wish we would all live for. Um, and, and I don't want to sound preachy, but man, when all this stuff fell away, it just became crystal clear. And I've so, I've said this to several people that, that I've, this is kind of a gift that I have in that we all know we're going to die and, and we just kind of drift through life until it kind of catches up to us. Mm. Whereas I've been given this little glimpse into the window of my ending that most of us don't get. And so I'm able to strip away the mundane and the unimportant and dig in and focus on what's important. And it's kind of a gift if you look at it like that. And that's how I'm choosing to look at it. And I don't want to die. I love living. I love it. I live it hard. Mm-hmm. But it it is what it is, and I'm embracing it. And so I'm just going to grab the moments I can grab and it could be a sunset it could be listening to a beautiful piece of music while I'm having a cigar they're everywhere Ryan the moments are everywhere and I just value them now more than ever because I know I'm I'm running out of them you know what strikes me as I listen to you and I'm just so grateful for for you sharing this is that you know, sometimes you hear this expression, you know, live every day as if it was your last. And and I saw a really funny um, sort of riff on that recently. It was, I don't know if it was Twitter or Facebook, and this person was saying, like, this is terrible advice, right? Because <laughs> if you lived every day like it was your last, you, you probably wouldn't sleep. You'd probably be drunk all the time. Yeah. You know, you might, you might try heroin, like you might, you know, like you you want, you don't want to live every day like it's your last. So I mean, this is kind of like a joking sort of approach to that. But what I love about what the, what you're sharing is that, you know, sure you quit your job. Not all of us can do that, but for the most part, you're telling us things that we all can do every day. It's not like you're doing some extraordinary, like you're doing some extraordinary things like traveling maybe more than you would have. Right. But sharing a moment like that with someone and hanging out with your friends and really kind of pausing and going, guys, this is good. This is really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Note, making note of it, you know, calling attention to the moment. That's that's something if, we, if we'll just slow down a little bit, we can all do. It. You're right. Yeah. It's not something that we have to wait until the last bit of our life. Because frankly, 
as you said, you've been given an, a kind of gift. Not all of us are going to have right. this sort of runway on which to land our lives. We're going to suddenly die, you know, without warning or something. And, um, and of course, then we won't know what we've missed because we'll be gone. But, right. but I think to live our lives present, you know, like awake is, is the really the message I'm hearing from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to spend my time talking about on podcasts and 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 any kind of speaking opportunities and writing things, because um, I really want to call attention to this. And and it, you know, I've had uh, again our local group that we we had a we had our meetup uh, a month ago, and it, this diagnosis was fresh, and the meeting became all about that. And um, but it it was sweet and 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 heart wrenching at the same time. But one of the one of the women in the group, it was funny, you'll get a kick out of this. Um, she said, uh, yeah, I was doing something the other day and I was all frustrated about it. And then she said, she stopped and thought, wait a minute, Dave wouldn't be upset about this. He wouldn't mm. worry about this. And someone said, yeah, what would Dave do? What would Dave do? <laughs> and I then, was thinking the and same thing. WWDD. <laughs> so what, what we're doing. <laughs> She's an artist and she does these bracelets. So we're making up these WWDD bracelets. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you find the laughter in it. Um, again, it is what it is. And I don't know. You can fight it kicking and screaming or you can just soak up as much life as you can, as long as you can. And I don't intend to let this go to the bitter end. I'm not, I, I, I I'm going to look into ways to take take that take control of that ending you know i was going to ask you that actually um and so yeah you you brought it up so yeah. what you know i know a lot of people consider alzheimer's other forms of dementia als and a couple of others as these diseases that you really don't want to ride it out to the end right no it gets um, ugly yeah so what is the what are your options well it's you know Physician assisted dying is is legal in in several states and many countries. So I'm going to look right. into where that is, what the what the legal ramifications are, what I need to do in order to qualify for that and and begin to take steps to to make that happen toward the end. Um I know there's a lot of different schools of thought on that, but my own per- personal opinion is when we have a diagnosis like this and we know that it's going to come and we, we to to make someone live to the very last day that that they draw a a, a painful ragged death is cruel it it's yep. it's immoral it's cruel and the fact that it's not legal to do that in every state is simply be- because we're religious based mm-hmm. I, yep. I fully believe that if if religion were not a thing and people weren't saying well you can't play god then it would be legal because it makes sense it's your life it's just stupid that it's not legal so I'm going to look into that. I'm also, I also want to get involved in trying to lobby for legislation for that. Um, uh, I just was talking to Drew Bakius a little bit ago and he's in touch with some people in Minnesota who are working on that. So yeah, I have some other resources. If it may be the same ones that Drew has, but, um, I'll, I'll yeah. look up what I have and send it over to you. And I would, I would, if you're yeah. open to it, I would love to talk to you about that subject specifically on a future episode once you've kind of gotten your thoughts around it a bit more and yeah um, that'd be great that'd be a good episode i think it's necessary to talk about yeah, this stuff yeah and i have a, a good friend one of my students at usc um who's 
you know, he's he's a young man who's very interested in this subject of death and dying. He's in fact taking a class right now in the geriatrics department at USC's medical um, sort of adjunct um, classwork. And and it's a it's a but it's a course for everyone. It's not just for geriatologists or anything. Mm-hmm. And it's called Death and Dying. And he said he's probably watched five or six documentaries about about the subject. And it's definitely an interesting one, you know, I mean, because it's it really does pit human autonomy and bodily autonomy um, against the ways in which people might assist you and, and that sort of thing. And it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that because I think it's, it's easy to talk about that type of subject when you're relatively healthy, as far as you know, and, and, and a completely different thing, I would think, uh, to talk about it when you're talking about, you know, your own impending death. Yeah. No, it, it, it brings it home in a, in a whole different level. So I think I have a right to talk about it, and mm. I think I, I, I think I have a responsibility to talk about it. Actually, like I told the students today at at, at the university, I, I just I think I think that religion uh, muddies the water when it comes to human behavior, unnecessarily so, and I would like to see that done away with, um, because this is an aspect of dying is a part of life. Yes. It's not the final enemy, like the Bible says. It's just it's just something that happens, right? And it's it's going to happen to all of us. So why not make it a process that's more humane and makes more sense? Uh, so that's that's what I want to get involved in. What are your other plans? What what other plans do you have in terms of the immediate near future? I guess that's all the kind of future you're thinking about these days is the immediate future. But what do you you have some travel plans? I guess. Yeah, uh, I'll be out in Southern California at the end of this month. You and I are going to get a drink, I presume. Yes, we are. I've got a trip to Italy planned and some other... I'm doing a little road trip tomorrow. I just need to get out. I'm a little restless right now. I've been yeah sitting around for a week with nothing to do, and I, I get a little antsy. Well, I'm... You know, back to back to your visit to Southern California for a second. I'm, um, I, I saw a photo of you on, on Facebook um, smoking a cigar and you know, making a, a kind of a, a, a humorous comment about, uh, you know, what's it gonna do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I I do occasionally love love a cigar. I probably don't have more than one or two a year. Just lucky for me, almost more out of circumstances. I just don't have a place I can s- spend an hour smoking. But right, um, I I am committed to finding such a place for us. Let's do it. I'll bring the cigars. Okay. <laughs> Deal. I would love that. One of the poems that I brought to the class today, I, w- I won't read the whole thing, it's long, but it's called, and maybe I can get a, um, I'll post it on the uh, the Facebook page. Um, it's it's by a Brazilian poet that someone sent me, Mario DeAndrade. Mm. Um, my soul has a hat. And he starts off by saying, I counted my years and realized that I have less time to live by than I have lived so far. I feel like a child who won a pack of candies. At first he ate them with pleasure, but when he realized that there was little left, he began to taste them intensely. I have no time for endless meetings where the statutes, rules, and procedures and internal regulations are discussed, knowing that nothing will be done. I no longer have the patience to stand absurd people who, despite their chronological age, have not grown up. My time is too short. I want the essence. My spirit is in a hurry. I do not have much candy in the package anymore. I want to live next to humans, very realistic people, who know how to laugh at their mistakes, who are not inflated by their own triumphs, and who take responsibility for their actions. 
In this way, human dignity is defended and we live in truth and honesty. Yes, I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry to live with the intensity that only maturity can give. I did not intend to waste any of the remaining desserts. I'm sure they will be exquisite, much more than those eaten so far. My goal is to reach the end satisfied and at peace with my loved ones and my conscience. We have two lives, and the second begins when you realize you only have one. Hmm. Dave, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and, and sharing just your journey. And it's, uh, I mean, one of the phrases there in that poem was maturity. And I just think one of the things that just oozes through everything that you've shared is just this process of becoming mature. Mm-hmm. It's a shame it takes us all our lives to become mature and then it's over. You know, it really, we, we don't, it some really of, does. Some of us don't get to enjoy the, the, the fruit of being mature for very long. But, um, but thank you so much for your vulnerability, for your willingness and even enthusiasm to share your approach to your life, especially as you look towards um, not having a lot of it left which could be the case for any one of us mm-hmm. listening right now. I mean, it, we just don't know. And um, it's just a, such a healthy and helpful uh, refocusing effort, you know, to to uh, hug the people around you that, that love you and that you love and to phone the friend or family member that you haven't so- talked to in a while and um, invest in, in the things that really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell, Ryan. It's just focus on what matters, you know, put the phone down and be present in a conversation with a friend. Um, look in their eyes, laugh with them, cry with them, hug them, linger in the hug longer than you would. Just live the moment, live the life. It's just, there's so much beauty in that. And when, you know, when you were asking about the moments, I started thinking, well, I don't have any big moment, but that's, that's exactly the point. Mm-hmm. they're not the big things. It's the little things that we realize this is a moment. This is a moment. Good stuff, man. Yeah, man. Carpe the fucking diem. Carpe the fucking diem. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, man. My pleasure. I was so moved and challenged by Dave's story and the authenticity and, and boldness with which he shared it. I hope you were too. I hope you were moved and and challenged and made to think about the fragility of your life and those that you love and that uh, maybe some of the commitments that Dave has made could be implemented in your life. I know I'm thinking about that, ways in which I can live more deliberately. As I mentioned in my conversation with him, I do intend to have him back on the show to talk about his plans as time progresses in his life and his thoughts about death with dignity and physician-assisted dying. I'll let you know when he has his thoughts together about that and when we can schedule that conversation. Meanwhile, if you want to follow along with Dave's journey, I hope you'll check out his website. I'll again link that in the show notes, so please check that out. Drop him a line, tell him you're thinking of him, and I think what would mean the most to Dave is that we would each think about our own lives and the way that we're seizing the day, seizing the moment. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you again for spending this portion of your day with me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Podcast.